This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The collapse of the automobile sector in the United States has had a devastating impact on the state of Michigan and the city of Detroit. When consumers turn to Japan, Korea, and Germany for their cars and trucks, jobs in Michigan disappeared and the city of Detroit lurched towards a bankruptcy. The financial crisis of 2009 was the final blow. And Detroit schools did not escape the damage. The state of Michigan appointed emergency managers to operate the Detroit school district. Uh, salaries were cut, schools were closed, families and students fled to charter schools, suburbia and beyond. And public school enrollment fell by 73% between 1990 and 2015. It was not until 2017 that the state of Michigan began to resolve its problems by creating two school districts, an old one given the task for resolving the debt crisis and a new one that was uh, elected by the citizens of Detroit and was be responsible for the schools. Well, now Detroit has a new elected school board and that school board has selected Nikolai Vitti as its new superintendent. Three years later in December, 2020, amid the COVID pandemic, Superintendent was offered another three-year term as superintendent, uh, signaling happiness with his first three-year term. And broader than that, downtown Detroit seems to be recovering as small entrepreneurs are coming back into the city. Could Detroit and its schools be enjoying a renaissance? Well, to discuss Detroit's renewal, I'm just delighted to have Dr. Nicholas Vitti with me today on the Education Exchange. Uh, Superintendent Vitti, welcome to the Education Exchange. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Well, uh, Dr. Vitti, in an era when superintendents turn over more frequently than somersaulting gymnasts, you are entering <laughs> your fifth year as school superintendent. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, it's a lot better than average for big city school superintendents. What's the secret to your success? <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, I think it starts with having a reform-minded, committed school board. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I am who I am uh, as a leader. I think my, my track record speaks for itself. And uh, when, I, when I decided to come to Detroit, uh, I had a very direct, explicit conversation with the board. Uh, national search firm came to me when I was in Jacksonville, knew I had roots here in Detroit. And I was clear. I said, I, I'd love the job. It'd be an honor and privilege. Um, but the board has to know that they're hiring a reformer. And I, I'm going there to uh, make the conditions better for employees and, and students. And I, I have to make hard decisions. And the board has to be committed and supportive of that. And obviously, I need to be transparent and you know, transparent uh, and communicative about what we're doing and why we're doing it. But the board has to allow me to run the district and they have to focus on governance. Let me run the system. And it was a very direct conversation. I came to Jacksonville, saw the work that I was doing there. Uh, I obviously came here to interview and know about the history of, of Detroit uh, my family's experienced uh, some of the hardships that are associated with some of the quick history that you gave in your opening. Um, so I think I've been able to stay in this role for five years and, and have an extended contract because I was up front with what I expected the board. And I think they were up front with what they expected of me, that they wanted a reformer. They wanted to 
change the system. What did the board appreciate about your experience in Jacksonville? What was it in your uh, history as a leader that they found attractive when they uh, made the decision to bring you? Well, well, one, um, I, I think they wanted someone that was not afraid to implement change. Um, someone that would make hard decisions uh, in sometimes a political space where you don't make those hard decisions because you upset people. Uh, you know, you upset, you upset unions or, uh, you know, longtime community members um, who want change but want everything to stay the same at, at simultaneously. And um, so they wanted someone that would be willing to make hard decisions. They wanted someone that had a track record of raising student achievement, um, but also someone who was going to be sympathetic and empathetic to why change is hard and actually um, have someone that can communicate change, listen to people and communicate why things had to be changed. And I think someone that had integrity in doing that change um, I think were the factors they were looking at. And, and I think they saw that in the people that they talked to and met in, in Jacksonville. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they saw that in me. And I think at this point I've been able to deliver that. Uh, and they've stayed true to their commitment to allow me to actually run the system. Well, so what's the hardest decision you've had to make in your first few years here at, in Detroit? Um, I, I think a lot of them, you know, on, on some level, personnel changes, you know, I've changed now at least three-fourths of principals in, in about 100 buildings. Uh, those have been hard decisions. Um, I've probably have changed three-fourths of central office since I've been here. Um, I think eliminating uh, a lot of the contracts that were associated with the district was hard politically. I don't think they were hard strategically, but hard politically. Um, I think those were the harder decisions. I think, you know, we had a water crisis here where uh, we started to test the, the water, which was not legally required at the federal state level and started to see lead in some schools. I had to turn off the water uh, in all buildings and move to water bottles, uh, you know, similar to the Flint crisis. That was not uh, easy to, it was the right decision to make an easy decision on the health and welfare of children. But from a PR perspective, that was a hard decision to make. Um, but we managed through it. And now we have um, uh, hydration stations in all the buildings. Um, and now the water is safe. So those are some of the harder decisions that I've made. Uh, but, you know, going back to the board, you know, what I did is prep the board up front with what are the, what's the issue here? Why do I have to make that change? And to their credit, they trusted me. Uh, and allowed me to make that change. And then when people went to them to try to undercut the decision that I was making as superintendent, they supported that change. And I think that's why we've been able to maintain this relationship that's similar to marriage. You know, you're going to disagree at times, but how do you talk through it? Um, and how do you maintain trust as you're walking through difficult reform? And we've been able to do that so far. Well, personnel is really important. You have to have people uh, down the chain of uh, command, so to speak, that you can rely upon. And you really need to give them autonomy to be able to respond. Uh, have you been able to give your principals a lot of autonomy? Not yet. Um, you know, in, in coming into the organization, uh, I often say the greatest challenge was a lack of systems and processes for everything. 
um, from you know curriculum that was at grade level standards to paying people on time, um, you know, you name it, we didn't have a system and process for it. And so I would say over the last couple of years, it's about being more systematic with what we should expect uh, in, in multiple areas. But now that the systems and processes are starting to mature and be understand and be understood, the vision is to move to greater autonomy at individual schools where I have been able to empower principals is on the personnel side. So I have, you know, we, we reduced a lot of our contracting, so we hired more art teachers, for example, more music teachers, more physical education teachers. Uh, we moved to having deans rather than contracting out for some of our climate and culture and restorative practices work. And that's empowered them to say, here are positions. Uh, you decide who you want to hire, but I'm gonna hold you accountable to then the metrics related to those, to those personnel from chronic absenteeism, you know, the literacy intervention, if you will. Um, so I think the empowerment has come on the personnel side for them, but less autonomy when we think about curriculum um, and intervention strategies as far as literacy and math are concerned. So you mentioned uh, art and music. Is this, uh, was this something that you felt uh, was not being given sufficient emphasis uh, when you arrived in Detroit? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so I've always believed in this notion of the whole child uh, that, you know, at, at the core, education is about uh, literacy, math, science, social studies. Um, but it's, it has to be much broader than that. It, it has to be about the arts, about athletics, about extracurricular activities. And, you know, I believe that music and art is just as important as literacy, math, science, and social studies. So we would never think about laying off, you know, an, an English language arts teacher. I don't think we should ever think about laying off a music or art teacher. I, for a lot of our students, not only in Detroit, but you know, throughout the country, uh, if children aren't exposed to beauty, they can never understand it, protect it, enhance it. And I think beauty comes through the arts, you know, uh, creative thinking, innovation, um, expression, voice. And so uh, as we thought about rebuilding the district and just rebuilding the, the school experience for our students, I thought art and music had to be a critical part of that. And then obviously the, the richness of, of the arts in Detroit, um, you know, it's clear for everyone, you know, throughout the world knows that. And our students are so talented that it, it was just, it was an injustice not to have that part of the regular experience. You, you look at the history of Motown, most of those artists will talk about their experience in public schools. And that's actually what inspired them and, and honed their skill set. And so that was part of the thinking in, in the reform is to bring the arts back across the district. That was being mostly contracted out. And I knew that it was hit or miss by a school, by a grade level. And we made that a permanent, consistent exposure from pre-K to 12th grade and added a cultural passport program so that our students could go to the museum, could go to the opera, could go to the symphony as part of their regular school experience from pre-K to fifth grade to where, regardless of the school you go to in the Detroit public school system, you will be exposed to all of that as just part of the regular school experience. And that was part of the richness of Detroit in the past. And that was part of just bringing back something that made sense. Well, you know, we're going to the symphony on Saturday. My wife and I were both pianists. So you're talking to the choir here. I can tell you that. It's I yeah. can agree with you uh, 
more. But now you're facing a lot of competition from the charter schools in Detroit. Um, are you holding your enrollment um, vis-a-vis that competition in, in recent years? I know part of the decline was this loss of students to the other sector. So how is that working out in the contemporary period? Well, just for context, we, we operate about 100 schools. We, we now serve about 50,000 students in the K-12 uh, grade levels, and about another two to 3,000 in the pre-K uh, level. There are about 36,000 students that attend charter schools in the city. Um, and so since, since becoming superintendent, we, before the pandemic, we increased enrollment by about 6,000 students um, since I became superintendent. So that the district had not seen an increase in enrollment in almost two decades. Um, so we were able to increase enrollment. We saw enrollment drop by about 2,500 students since the pandemic hit. Um, uh, rather low, uh, relatively speaking, when you look at other large urban school districts. Yeah, this has been happening across the country. I think New yeah. lost 200,000 or something like that, that number. So as we go into this fall, which we've been open now for about three weeks, our enrollment, uh, about 98% of our students are back in person, which is great. Another 2% are in our virtual school. But we're, our enrollment is, is where it was in the spring, and it's starting to trend toward where we were before the pandemic. So I, I'm confident that we'll definitely exceed where we were in the spring and possibly uh, rebound uh, from an enrollment point of view of where we were before the pandemic hit. So you're really emphasizing the need to get back in person into the school for all children. We are. We last year, uh, you know, I thought really the first year coming back to school, our position was really focused on equity. And what we were saying as a district is, if a child can go back to a private school or suburban school district then at the minimum, our schools have to be open in, in DPFCD. That was a very hard conversation to have. It was hard to have with the union. Uh, it was really hard to even to talk about that with the community because of the disproportionate negative impact that COVID had on Detroit families, honestly, uh, from a death point of view and a hospitalization point of view. So people thought, you know, Dr. Vita, you're crazy. You're being insensitive to opening up schools last fall um, and our position was it was an equity um, strategy and an equity commitment. We didn't feel like we should impose in-person learning on our families, but we, we felt we needed to offer it as an option. So uh, it was a very difficult process. We ended up reaching a compromise with the teachers union um, where we uh, opened up all schools, but we gave teachers choice to work in person or online. Um, but all schools were at least were open as learning centers. All children could come in to eat breakfast, lunch, um, at least learn online in school uh, with a teacher or at least a paraeducator or interventionist and administrator. Uh, so we had about 12,000 of our 50,000 students coming into school in person. The rest learned online, uh, as was the case throughout the country. It was a very difficult year. 70% of our students were chronically absent, missing 18 or more days. You know, we saw a lot of learning loss, but you know, the positive um, aspect of where we are now is 98% of our students are back and all of our teachers are back. And we've actually hired an additional 100 teachers this year. So we've been able to reduce class size, um, increase after school programming, 
uh, and expand summer program because of COVID relief funding. So I'm optimistic about uh, uh, this year. Uh, our vulnerability is a lack of vaccinations, um, not with our employees, but with our families. But hopefully we can we can see improvement in that area as the year uh, progresses. Well, if you're under the age of 12, you can't be vaccinated yet, but that might be changing fairly soon. I think there's some Correct. that we're going to be able to do that. Now, so I was going to ask you, how are you using uh, the COVID relief money from the federal government? You've already sort of partially responded to that. Uh, do you think this is uh, the strategy you have is sufficient to make up for the losses that the students uh, experienced last year? Well, I, I've said this repeatedly, you know, having always worked in uh, large urban school districts, teacher, principal, principal leader, um, superintendent, I, I feel that, that, that this round of COVID relief funding is the first time we've had equitable funding. You know, the, the challenge uh, with it is it's one-time money. And it's, you know, we probably could only use it in two to three years. Um, but, it, but it is sufficient funds, I think, to uh, restart the school system, if you will, and get kids back in school in a safe way, but also in a way that addresses some of the challenges that have been historic uh, that our students have faced, but, but um, exacerbated because of the pandemic. Uh, for example, um, I think we're going to be able to do things that we've wanted to do, but just haven't had the funding to do. For example, mental health uh, support. So this year, uh, through contracted services, and, and, and it is contracted services, one, we couldn't ramp it up in enough time to hire people and sustain that employment with one-time money. So uh, we will have tier two and tier three mental health uh, support, so one-on-one -on -one small group district-wide. Um, we've now done almost 30,000 home visits uh, over this past summer into the school year to get kids back in school. Um, you know, laptop for every student, internet access for every student, a nurse in every building. These are things that we would have never been able to do. Now, the, the challenge is, is it's one-time money and there's going to be a cliff to that. But I, I believe in the next, this year and next, I think we'll be able to move the needle in different ways from an attendance point of view, um, a mental health point of view, which I'm hopeful I'll have the, the outcomes to then go back to the state legislature and argue with data to show if we're equitably funded, we can reach students in a much deeper way um, and raise student achievement because we've had those resources. Um, from a learning loss point of view, uh, summer school helped. We had 10,000 students attend summer school. Never had that many. Um, uh, we're going to, I talked about lower class sizes in the lower grades, but, you know, the big opportunity for us is to expand one-on-one -on -one small group literacy and math interventions, uh, which I think will help uh, address that learning loss and expand after-school programming, even Saturday school, which I think will address some of the learning loss as well. So, um, our, our focus on COVID relief funding has been learning loss, attendance, um, and uh, the social emotional needs of our students. The last piece of COVID relief funding is infrastructure, just facilities. In Detroit, our, our buildings are 66 years old on average. We have about $1.5 billion of need, which with, with no state funding revenue to address that. And Detroiters are, over, are overly taxed to begin with. Uh, so we're going to put a, about 800 million 
uh, in that $1.5 billion problem and at least put a dent into our problems. I don't think it'll solve all of them, but you know, for the first time in a long time, uh, Detroiters and children and families will see an improvement in infrastructure without uh, the local taxpayer feeling the brunt of that. This all sounds uh, great, but you mentioned the cliff when the money falls short. Is the state going to be more generous to Detroit in the future than it's been in the past? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Unless the, uh, the makeup of the legislature change, changes uh, with more Democrats or Republican moderates. But uh, no, I'm not, I'm not optimistic about that. I, I think this year and next year uh, we'll have some solid outcomes uh, to share with the legislature. But this has been an ongoing um, problem in Michigan. Uh, you know, when you look at the way the state funds schools, it's not only an antiquated, but it's extremely inequitable, uh, where, um, you know, state funding is relatively the same per pupil. The difference is that at the local level, there's a, there's a tax that's required, uh, the local millage, which based on the per capita um, income uh, in, in local school districts, uh, there's more money generated in wealthier cities. Uh, and so if you took our number of students, about 50,000, and applied them to nearby districts like a Birmingham, Southfield, Bloomfield Hills, with our, which are wealthier cities, we would generate anyway, anywhere from 160 million to 190 million more dollars in reoccurring revenue. Um, if you apply their tax base to what we have in Detroit. So we all know we receive more federal funding, but that was always the vision behind that is was to, to address poverty, you know, with more with more resources. And we can't apply that to buildings and really teacher salaries. So um, that has to be addressed, I think, to give students a fair chance from a from a zip code perspective. So uh, we're going to continue to make the argument. I think we'll have better data. But honestly, I think long term, we're going to have to look at um, possible lawsuits in this area to give children what they deserve. Well, of course, there's also the possibility of uh, uh, economic renewal within the city of Detroit. And there has been some encouraging signs. Youth, but then, of course, COVID has sort of had a, a negative impact uh, on the economy. So how do you see Detroit emerging out of the pandemic? Well, um, you know, in your, in your introduction, um, you spoke to the, uh, a revitalization of the economy in the city, and th there has been, um, but, you know, most, most Detroiters view that as uh, very much big business um, orientated and focused on, on the downtown area. And, and I think everyone is excited about that, but, but people are waiting for that to, to grow into the neighborhoods. Um, and to, to, to rise up those in poverty into the more of the middle class, working class type of scenarios. There are signs of that, but it just, it just hasn't scaled at, at this point. So I think with the dollars that the city's receiving, there's going to be more intention about trying to invest in neighborhoods, local business, small businesses to try to uh, spread the economic improvement that's being seen in, in certain sectors of the city. Um, so more investment in infrastructure, more investment in, in, in housing, small businesses, local businesses is part of the conversation that, that I've heard and, and hope to see implemented. 
so that the uh, improvement can be experienced by more Detroiters. Well, you know, one of the biggest problems in our high, in our schools today is the high school. And I'm wondering, um, you, you've been talking a lot about, you know, smaller classes in elementary and, and middle school, but how about the high school? What are you doing to sort of address a nationwide problem of, of kids sort of turning themselves off from school when they reach a certain age? Yeah, I would say that continues to be one of our greatest challenges uh, as a district. I, you, you can definitely walk into elementary schools, and most of our schools are actually K-8. You can walk through them, and when I think back to what I saw when I first started to where we are now, I feel much better about the culture, climate, um, intentionality around instruction, and school improvement at our elementaries and K-8s. When you walk into high schools, you don't see that difference yet. Um, and I'm, you know, nowhere am I satisfied with where we are from a graduation rate point of view or college readiness rate. I, the first step for us was trying to get the right leaders in those high schools. And I think we've made improvement there. The next step was to rebuild the curriculum um, to make it grade level and, and more about college readiness. And I think we've done that. Now it's about implementing that curriculum with, with greater fidelity, um, more buy-in. And the other piece of this was trying to create stronger programming at the high school level to be more about a springboard, the college or the world of work. Um, and so we've made a lot of gains with due enrollment um, to improve the programming at high schools. And we're now just starting the work of career academies, which I think is a, a better way to make the 11th and 12th grade experience more relevant to students. So more career technical education, and just more career academies linked to the industries that are um, opportunities for students in Detroit. Um, so that still needs to be worked on, but we're looking to do more internships, more co-ops, uh, just to make the high school experience more relevant in 11th and 12th grade, because for, you know, for a lot of students outside of Detroit, they'll still go to school because their parents are emphasizing, look, you have no choice, you have to go to school with where our, our, a lot of our families are socioeconomically and just trying to survive on a day-to-day on -day basis, as their students get older, those students have more autonomy, uh, right or wrong. And if they don't feel like the high school experience is relevant, they just are opting out uh, by not coming to school. And so our responsibility is to create greater, stronger programming to keep them there and improve the relationships with those students to make the high school experience more relevant and that's what we're working on. But honestly, when I name the things that we still have a lot of work to do, it's that high school experience that still needs a lot of work. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Vitti, for sharing your thoughts on uh, Detroit's public schools and the uh, um, efforts that you and your school board have been making to, to turn things around in, in Detroit. So thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I have been speaking with Nikolai Vitti, superintendent of the Detroit public school system. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.